It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. Nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phrase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go Money, 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 money. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and it's Wednesday, which means uh, armchair politics is coming up in about an hour. Former official with two administrations, two presidential administrations, Mark Everson, will be joining our roundtable regulars, uh, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right. But it's the first Wednesday of the month that we start the show out talking about money and uh, our our frequent uh, visitor. In fact, he's been a guest so often on the show, it seemed appropriate that he should have his own theme song. <laughs> <laughs> so joining me by phone uh, to talk a little bit about the economy and, and um, what's been going on with it, what will be going on with it, is economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint. Chris, good morning. Welcome. Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that theme song. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Courtesy of Eric Idle and uh, Monty Python. Um, <laughs> I think that fits the economy nowadays. Well, it it kind of does. And one of the things, I, w- I was looking at, uh, at something in the Wall Street Journal that suggested that while some of the sanctions against Russia and Vladimir Putin um, might bite the Russian economy, um, there could be some unpredictable risks and ricochets. Um, what do you think is, is likely to happen with, uh, with the American economy, um, given the, the sanctions that are being placed on Russia over their invasion of uh, Ukraine? Well, I think we're already seeing some of the effects with oil hitting a decade high. Um, 
the price of Brent crude oil, which is crude oil uh, drilled in Europe, hit over $100 a barrel. I think it's up to about $111 a barrel today. So that's just stunning how much oil has increased by. When you go back to just Christmas, oil was at $75 a barrel. So a rule of thumb is that every $10 price increase to the price of a barrel of oil increases the price of gasoline by about 25 cents a gallon. So if you see oil increase by 10 bucks just in a day, you could expect that to hit you um, at the pump very quickly. Already in Genesee County, we're seeing the price of gasoline be 3.59 a gallon. I see that as high as 3.69 a gallon. And the longer this conflict drags on in the Ukraine, um, the more people, the more the market gets worried about oil disruptions, and the higher the price of oil goes as a result. So I think higher gas prices are the immediate um, effect of the conflict. I think gas prices will probably go higher. Um, and then kind of who knows what's coming down the pike because whatever people start messing around in the economy with sanctions, it's hard to know what the unintended consequences are. Well, the president announced in his State of the Union uh, address last night that he had uh, consulted with uh, some other uh, NATO countries, I think, and and that um, oil was being uh, pulled out of uh, strategic preserves in multiple countries um, to, to kind of help curb those increases in, in supply and, and prices. Um, will that have an impact? Do you, do you understand what, what he was doing there and what he hopes the outcome will be? Yeah, I mean, you hear that every time the price of oil goes up. So pulling oil out of the strategic petroleum reserve, that's the solution that's always trotted out when oil spikes. It happened in 2007 when oil hit $150 a barrel. Um, this, that's just a political talking point to make it sound like politicians are actually doing something. <laughs> the thing is, is that there's so little oil in the strategic petroleum reserve that pulling even all of it out would make very little long-term difference in the price of oil. So, for instance, Russia produces about 10% of the world's supply of oil. Um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has about 750 million barrels of oil a day, or, or in it. So, just real quick, I can look up the U.S. oil consumption in a day. Um, it is about 18 million barrels of oil per day. So, if you just do 750 million barrels of Strategic Petroleum Reserve divided by 18, you're talking, well... What is that? Not quite. Um, it's early. I can't do math in my head. You're just not talking about a very long period of time that the strategic oil preserve could um, plug the, the, the halt of Russia oil exports. It'd be about 41 days worth of oil, the strategic petroleum reserve. So um, that's why it just doesn't really have a long-term effect on price if we start drawing down um, those reserves. Again, it sounds good, like we're going to make up the lost Russian production by using the strategic oil preserve, but there's, like I said, about 42 days worth of oil consumption in that reserve. So I wouldn't expect that to do anything in terms of oil and gasoline prices over the long run. What about the... Um this this uh, sanction involving uh, international money transactions. Um, yeah, so that's the SWIFT system. Yeah. So uh, when banks 
conduct international transactions that have to communicate with other banks. And they'd use that. They use a program called SWIFT to do so. It's kind of like, I don't know, instant messenger or something for banks. You know, if you're talking to a friend overseas, maybe you use WhatsApp or a similar program. But it has, things, like it has things built into it, like like money conversion and um, language translation and stuff, right? Oh, sure. Uh, but basically, it's, it's a messaging tool for, for banks when conducting international transactions. So if a bank gets kicked off of that, well, then they have to resort to telephone calls or fax machines. Like, that's it. So that would be very impractical for a bank conducting hundreds or thousands of international transactions. So getting kicked off the SWIFT system basically means a bank can no longer conduct business with banks in different countries. So some Russian banks are getting kicked off the SWIFT system, uh, which will probably hinder their ability to conduct business. But you don't see the largest Russian banks getting kicked off the SWIFT system, especially banks that are key to the oil industry. Because like we're talking about with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, there's just no way to make up the 18 million barrels per day of oil that Russia produces. Like I said, 10% of the world's supply. So you might see these sanctions, like kicking banks off of SWIFT. Apple is not going to sell iPhones in Russia any longer. The big three is talking about how they're not going to sell cars in Russia any longer. But the one thing you won't see is the energy industry in Russia being sanctioned either oil drilling, natural gas, or banks that deal in that sector because the results would be very catastrophic for Americans and Europeans. Are, are there blowbacks from any of those other things? It's, it's almost as if uh, we're saying, well, we're going to sanction Russia in any way we think will hurt them and not us. That's right. That's how sanctions always work. Um, you, but the United that, States and its, al but it, and its allies will be careful to not sanction anything that will hurt the U.S. consumer too much. Because if that happens, well, then um, the U.S. and its allies start losing political support from voters. But is oil and, and energy products the only place that we're really safe from that? Or are there other things that can blow back on us that maybe we're not um, as, as accustomed to uh, dealing with or, or trying to avoid? Um, sure. It's always hard to know what the unintended consequences are of sanctions like this. The economy is very complex. If you fiddle with one thing in the economy, there's going to be blowback that's hard to anticipate. I think we saw that with the shutdown in March and April 2020. It's never been attempted to shut down a multi-trillion dollar economy. It was shut down anyway, and we're still seeing the blowback from that. That was unanticipated. And I think you'll see that with Russia, too, when exports that are thought to not hurt the U.S. consumer are sanctioned, but turn out to have unintended consequences that do. So, for instance... You know, Russia's a really big country. I mean, it's just hard to overstate how massive it is. It spans something like nine time zones. And it just has a lot of raw materials, oil and, gas, and oil and natural gas, of course, but also various rare earth elements that are, ne are necessary to produce semiconductors, something like 90% of the world's supply of industrial-grade neon comes from Russia. Neon is used to make lasers, and lasers are needed to make semiconductors. Also, if you look at things like lithium, 
um, something like I think 30 to 40 percent of the world's lithium supply comes from Russia, and lithium is need to make is needed to make batteries. So we're talking about a semiconductor shortage right now before the Ukrainian crisis, which is making it difficult to produce new vehicles. Well, if exports of things like neon and lithium uh, become hindered due to sanctions or just due to disruptions due to the war and political conflict, you might see supply chain shortages that we've gotten used to over the last two years get a lot worse. How will the... um the the sanctions against Russia impact um, U.S. China trade relations. Are um, we going to see an economic version of uh, George Orwell's 1984, where now that we're on the outs with Russia, we're we're going to make nice with China? Uh, it could be. I we saw that in the 1970s where. Uh, we were on the outs with China since the Communist Revolution in the 1940s, and then in the early 1970s, I forget exactly what year it was, 1971 maybe, Nixon goes to China because China was on the outs of Russia due to a border dispute. So we thought, well, this was time to cozy up with China. Uh, maybe you see something um, similar happen where uh, for the last five or six years, everything has been about how the Chinese are participating participating in international trade unfairly, well, now maybe they're going to be our new best friend. It's kind of like that scene, as you mentioned, in 1984, where there's a speaker talking about how, I forget what country they were at war with, but mid-speech, he's handed a new piece of paper, and now they're at war with a different country, and the country <laughs> they were at war with is their new best friend. So I think we might see the equivalent of that happening um, with, the, with the Russian sanctions. And, and do the sanctions really have an impact on the Russian economy? Uh, I mean, will this be really, really tough for the for Russian citizens? Yeah, probably the rank-and-file Russian will suffer, just like the rank-and-file do whenever there's a sanction. If you look at countries that have sanctions right now, like Cuba, there's been a sanction in Cuba basically since the 1960s. It's not like the Castro re regime ever suffered um, with the Cuban trade embargo. Um, Castro died a multimillionaire. I forget exactly what his net worth was. I looked it up at one point, but it was, it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. For some reason, $400 million sticks in my head. I think that's probably about right. So the regime never suffers. Um, if you look at the Kim Jong-un regime in North Korea, they're not suffering with sanctions. So Kim Jong-un has a couple of luxury palaces on the Pacific Ocean that Dennis Rodman went to a jet skied with them. Same with the Iranian, the Iranian regime. So the Putin regime is unlikely to suffer. Um, perhaps the oligarchs squeal a little bit if they can't travel to Monaco or any other <laughs> fancy vacation destination. But it's not like their billions are going to evaporate. They'll just be the rank and file who suffer. The rank and file have very little political pressure. Chris, I, I have to take a... I have to take a break here, um, so so can we put a comma there and pick it up there when we come back? Oh, sure. All right. My guest is uh, Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint. We're going to talk about, uh, uh, well, we'll talk a little more about the Russian economy, and then we'll see what things are doing back home.
Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. 
Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our uh, conversation about some of the news in uh, the world of economics at home and abroad with uh, economist Chris Douglas, who joins me by phone. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, as always, and uh, sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no worries, Tom. It's always great to be here. Um, we were talking a little bit about uh, blowback from Russian sanctions, and one of the things that, that I was reading is that, um, well, and, and the president referred to it in his State of the Union uh, message last night uh, about the uh, drop in the uh, value of, of Russian rubles against uh, American dollars and the, the value of their stock exchange has dropped by 40% or something to that effect. Um, what about the the impact back here? Um, you know, you, you always remind me that the American Stock Exchange does not like uncertainty, and things certainly seem uncertain in uh, Russia and, and Ukraine right now. Yeah, that's right. Um before the break, too, we were talking about sanctions and what effect they have. And over the break, I looked up the net worth for Fidel Castro. He died with a net worth of about $900 million. Kim Jong-un's worth about $500 billion. So the sanctions never hit the guy at, on top. Um, the sanctions just hurt the people who have no political power, the rank and file. Um, the sanctions of Iraq never caused people to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. But they did cause the people of Iraq to live in abject poverty. So I think that's probably the most likely outcome for the Russian people um, if these sanctions stick. Um, how is the blowback for the American Stock Exchange? Well, uh, I think the American Stock Exchange or the stock market is being driven largely by monetary policy with the Federal Reserve just pumping basically a limited quantity of money into the economy over the last two years. And that quantity of money has to find a home. It's largely found a home by people buying stocks, which has caused the stock market to rally. So I think the stock market is most more likely to correct if the Federal Reserve ever starts raising interest rates to try to dial down the rate of inflation, which is at a 40-year high. So if the Federal Reserve gets aggressive raising rates over the next year, I think that would probably cause the stock market to, to decline. Uh, but you're right, the stock market hates uncertainty, which is why you see triple-digit declines in the Dow over the last couple of days with the Ukrainian situation just getting worse and escalating. Um, when could the stock market really take a hit? Well, there would have to be some sort of like financial blowback where a Russian bank fails because perhaps it was kicked off the SWIFT system and perhaps there's some ties to that Russian bank to like an American hedge fund or an American bank and all of a sudden that big hedge fund or American bank is on the ropes as well. Uh, we saw that in 1998 when the Russian government defaulted on its debt and um, a big hedge fund um, It was called, I'm blanking on the name, but there was a book written about it called When Genius Failed. Um, the hedge fund was started by a couple of Nobel Prize winners um, earlier in the 1990s. And that hedge fund goes down as a result of the Russian government 
Long-term capital management was the name of that hedge fund. That hedge fund goes down. It's really big, has massive amounts of assets. The worry is when that hedge fund went down, that's going to start bringing the entire U.S. financial system down with it. And the Federal Reserve had to organize a bailout of that hedge fund in 1998. So I think that's the most likely case of blowback. Some sort of financial sanction with Russia causes blowback to the U.S. financial system. And all of a sudden, the U.S. financial system starts teetering as well. It's always hard to know what that blowback is because the U.S. financial system is so complex and uh, obfuscated. Right? No one really knows what's going on with it until something bad really happens. Uh, we saw that in 1998, like I said, and we also saw that in 2007. Of course, 2007 didn't involve Russia, but housing market starts to teeter, housing prices start to decline, and all of a sudden, it turns out that the U.S. financial system is very invested in the housing market, never declining. So declining housing prices caused massive blowback, which caused a big financial crisis. So I think that's my real worry, is that there's some sort of interconnected relationship between some aspect of the financial system of the U.S. and Russia that starts to lead to problems if these sanctions continue. Now, you said if the, if the Fed raises rates um, as if it was not really a, a sure bet, and, and yet a lot of economists are almost certain that the Feds are going to raise the rates uh, it, it, at least um, once in the, in the very near future and possibly multiple times throughout the course of this year. Yeah, I know that's what a lot of economists think, and certainly with inflation running at a 40-year high, you think the Federal Reserve would start aggressively raising rates but I kind of feel like the Federal Reserve is looking for excuse to not raise rates. Um, people were thinking that there might be a 50 basis point increase in the interest rate at the March meeting of the Federal Reserve. I think that expectation is being dialed down to a 25 basis point increase in the interest rate, which means 0.25% increase in the interest rate, on part due to the Ukrainian crisis. So it looks like this crisis is just getting worse by the day. So who knows, in a couple of weeks when the Open Market Committee meets, you know, they might just say, well, we need to leave the interest rate unchanged because of um, a weakening economic picture due to the Iranian crisis and due to rising oil prices. Um, I think the real reason why the Federal Reserve has a difficult time raising interest rates is that because it becomes very expensive for the federal government to make interest payments on the national debt when interest rates rise. <clears throat> so just as a ballpark approximation, just a one percentage point increase um, in the interest rate would cause interest costs on the national debt to basically double, you know, going from something like $400 billion a year to $800 billion a year. Um, given how big the national debt is, it got really big during COVID, it increased by 25%. Uh, the federal government would go bankrupt if interest rates ever rose. It would be kind of like if you have a massive amount of credit card debt, and the credit card company just starts raising your interest rate, well, all of a sudden, making interest payments on that credit card debt becomes pretty unaffordable. You know, that's the situation the federal government finds itself in, and the Federal Reserve has kind of painted into a corner. If it raises rates to combat inflation, it runs the risk of bankrupting the federal government through the higher interest payments. If it keeps interest rates low, well, now you have inflation persisting. So what's the Federal Reserve supposed to do? 
Well, they find themselves, I think, in the same position as Congress. Well, they just want to kick the can down the road. Or you'll worry about it at some point in the future. I was talking with somebody who is is very knowledgeable about supply chain issues, and we got off on a bit of a tangent. But he, he was suggesting that despite the fact that a lot of people are feeling the pinch from higher prices right now because of supply chain issues um, and and other things like the whole thing we've talked about with uh, cars and chips and so on. But he was saying because of the likelihood that the Fed is going to raise interest rates, that's going to drive prices up even more. And that while some people are, are thinking this might not be a good time to make major purchases like cars and houses. He's suggesting the other way that this is probably that we should be doing. We should be buying things now because the prices are only going to go up higher. Yeah, I'm what, not sure that the Federal Reserve raising interest rates would cause prices to rise. Um, if anything, if the Federal Reserve aggressively raises interest rates, that would cause the economy to really slow down. Um, and then prices would probably fall. That's my reading, at least. If you go back to the early 1980s when Paul Volcker aggressively raised interest rates to get rid of the 1970s inflation, the economy entered into a massive recession. Um, unemployment nationwide hits nearly 10%, hits 17% in Michigan. And in a recession like that, prices are likely to fall. You know, that's one reason why I don't think the Federal Reserve is going to aggressively raise interest rates right now. Um, in addition to all the reasons we already discussed, um, the Federal Reserve, I don't think, would tolerate a severe recession right now, like the Federal Reserve was willing to tolerate in the early 1980s. I think prices are more likely to rise if interest rates don't go up, because that means inflation is going to be here to stay, um, which just means the longer you delay making a purchase, the higher the price of that purchase is going to be in the future. So if you don't buy a car right now, you want to wait a year, well, the car's just going to be more expensive. Or if you don't want to buy a new furnace right now, you want to wait till next winter, well, the furnace is only going to be more expensive next winter. So I tend to think that if the Federal Reserve doesn't raise rates, um, you want to make the purchases right now before inflation continues and those items become that much more expensive in the future. Now, so that's I, just my reading, at least. I was reading something in the, in the free press the other day that said um, that a recent report from the Pew Charitable Trusts said Michigan had the biggest drop in personal income among all 50 states between 2020 and 2021, yet a uh, Bloomberg News editorial last week was headlined, Woman in Michigan Governs the Number One Economy. Um what do you think is is really a fair take on the Michigan economy? It can't be, it can't be the best and the worst, or can it? Uh, yeah, that doesn't seem possible. Although I guess it could be possible if you want to, depending on how you define best and worst. So I do believe that in 2020, the Michigan economy was the worst of all 50 states, and that happens in every recession because. Despite everything that's happened to the Michigan auto industry over the last 40 years, uh, Michigan still is largely dependent on the auto industry. It still plays a dis, uh, disproportionate role in our economy compared to the other 49 states. Whenever there's a recession, 
kind of the first thing people cut back on is buying a new car. Understandably, new car is expensive. The times are tough. You know, that's a purchase you could delay, which means Michigan's economy always gets slammed in a, in a recession. That happened during the Great Recession um, a dozen years ago. It's happened in recessions before that. So if you look at total employment in Michigan, it just totally falls off a cliff during March and April 2020. It hits a record low level as far as the data goes back. It's worse than even the Great Recession. So by that definition, sure, the Michigan economy was the worst during COVID, but it could be the case that the recovery in Michigan was more rapid than the recovery in the other 49 states because, well, if you fall the lowest, kind of by definition and percentage terms, your recovery is going to be faster um, than everyone else's. So if you just look at the rate of recovery, well, you can make the argument that uh, Michigan has the fastest rate of recovery, but it kind of ignores the fact that while well, Michigan also had the fastest rate of decline. So I suppose it's just a matter of how you define your terms. It's kind of like saying, well, if my income falls from a million dollars per year down to zero, and then next year my income goes from zero to a dollar, well, hey, that's a 100% increase in income. Look how fast it's growing. It ignores the fact, well, look how fast it fell. Well, and some fact checkers were talking about uh, uh, some claims the president made in his speech last night um, about uh, economic recovery. And he said, and, and the fact checkers said, well, you know, technically it's true. It has been the biggest gain in whatever it was, a decade or two decades or something. He said, but you have to have a little context there coming out of the pandemic makes the growth rate seem inflated yeah that's what i think is going out with that bloomberg editorial for michigan as well you know march and april 2020 20 million jobs disappear in the u.s economy right. so you would expect to see monthly job growth on the order of 500,000 new jobs created in a month just as some of those lost jobs are regained it's just people who lost their job going back to work. So I sure technically 500,000 new jobs in a month looks like a big gain, you know, compared to say 2018 where the economy wasn't emerging out of a pandemic, but you're right. Context is important. When you lose that many jobs and the economy is reopened, people are allowed to go back to work. You'd expect a lot of those new or those old jobs to be regained. But that's what's happening. Old jobs are being regained. It's not like there are new jobs being created on top of jobs that already existed, which is what the case would be if the pandemic never happened. So it's a total apples to oranges comparison to say, well, hey, you know, 2018 when Trump was president, only 200,000 new jobs are being created per month. Whereas, hey, look, when Biden is president, 500,000 new jobs are being created per month. Because the 2018, with 200,000 new jobs are being created per month, 20 million jobs did, did disappear right before that. But those aren't uh, jobs that are um, being created or retained. They're, they're really being regained. Right, that's right. Jobs being created right now are being regained from what was lost two years ago at this point. It's kind of like a you force a restaurant to shut down, 50 jobs disappear, and then you say, well, restaurants can reopen. The restaurant reopens, it hires back its 50 workers, and you say, hey, look, I created 50 jobs, right? No one would really believe that's job creation. 
Right, right. Well, that's that's what makes some of this stuff uh, a little bit confusing and hard to sort out, which is why I appreciate you spending some time to help explain some of these things. Um, but getting back to the uh, Federal Reserve raising uh, rates, um, the central bank governor, um, Waller, is making a case that uh, that says that the Fed should raise rates at least a half a point um, sometime this month. Yeah, <clears throat> so you might have some governors who think it's time for the Federal Reserve to raise rates. I guess the question is, is what does the chair, Jerome Powell, want to do? Because it's the open market committee. It's the committee of 12 people that votes on raising rates. But in practice, the chair just exerts disproportional influence on that committee. If you think back to the Alan Greenspan days, everything was about what does Alan Greenspan want to do. No one talked about, well, what does the open market committee want to do? Well, people didn't, during the Greenspan days, people didn't even know there was a committee. Yeah, that's right. I mean, everyone (laughs) just said, well, it's the maestro, right? There's a book written by Bob Woodward called The Maestro, and John McCain did the 2000 presidential campaign famously said, well, if Al Greenspan passes away, we're just going to prop his dead body up to keep the market surging forward. <laughs> Something along those lines. That sounds Which like McCain. Shows, yeah, I mean, that just shows that the chair just exerts a lot of influence on the open market committee. So, sure, maybe you get one governor who says, well, it's time to raise interest rates by half a percentage point. Well, if the chair says, well, we need to keep them at zero, it's probably going to be the chair that um, wins the day. You know, maybe you see one or two dissenting votes. But the question I think people in the market really have is, well, what is Jerome Powell thinking? It's kind of hard to know what he's thinking. Um, he gives a press conference at the end of um, every open market committee meeting. You know, he gave a press conference in January. It's kind of rambling. People are like, well, does this mean he wants to raise rates in March? Does it mean he's going to hold off on raising rates in March? It was kind of hard to know. So I think there's some uncertainty in terms of what the Fed is going to do. So I think with the open market committee meets, and I think it's a couple of weeks roughly, you you might see the market move. People really have no idea, you know, what the Fed is going to do. Um, Maybe if the Federal Reserve raises rates by a a quarter point, that would be in line with market expectations. But if the Federal Reserve raises rates by half a point, you know, that might catch the market by surprise because the market might be thinking, well, given this Ukrainian situation, given surging energy costs, the Federal Reserve is going to be slow to raise rates. Or if the Federal Reserve leaves rates unchanged, that might catch the market by surprise a little bit because that means the Federal Reserve is going to hold off on fighting inflation. It's just really hard to know. Um, It's hard to know what the Federal Reserve is going to do with these it's a cliche, but it's true. Unprecedented times. Is is the uh, the situation in Ukraine and the subsequent uh, sanctions and and other actions and reactions by the uh, world community um, is is that having the biggest impact on the American economy, or is it something that is making other things that were happening worse? Um. I think it's making other things that were happening worse in the sense that you think about the recession that was going on two years ago, basically exactly. Uh, March, 2020, hard to believe that's been two years now, but I guess the math checks out. 
Um, that's the worst recession since the Great Depression. And the U.S. economy has tried to emerge from that worst recession since the Great Depression. You know, in the face of variants and, you know, surging cases, it seems like COVID is going to be seasonal. So every fall and winter cases, cases are going to surge, which makes it harder to emerge from that um, recession. So the U.S. is kind of struggling to get out of this recession. And then the Ukrainian situation happens that throws a big geopolitical crisis, surging energy prices, possible further economic repercussions, ramifications on top of what's already going on. You know, that just makes the current situation that much worse. Because really the last thing the American economy needs right now is $150 per barrel oil on top of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Just like, um, <laughs> you know, the last right. thing that Ukraine needs right now is a war with Russia. Well, we've uh, pretty much got to got to wrap it up there, Chris. But I always appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners, and and helping sort out some of these things that we're seeing on the news and and reading in headlines and that are blowing up our cell phones. But um, and and I want to tell people we got a break coming up here in just a couple of minutes, and on the other side of the break, we're going to hear some excerpts from last night's State of the Union message and Republican response, and then of course armchair politics starts at the top of the hour. But uh, Chris, thanks uh, for spending this time with me. What are the things that we should be uh, watching out for until next we speak? Uh, just the Ukrainian situation, it seems like it's not going to be over by uh, early April, which is the next time I think we're going to speak. So watch for energy prices, watch for Russian retaliation, um, watch for whatever unintended consequences there are from these economic sanctions. I think those threaten to do a lot of damage to the American economy, but it's always hard to know what those ramifications will be, just given how complex the global economy is. Is there anything significant about the state of the Russian military equipment that their invasion has, has started out so almost lackluster? It's hard to say because it's, there's the fog of war. It's always hard to cut through the fog of war. Right. Some people say, well, sure, this shows that maybe Russian military equipment's outdated. Um, the war, like most massive wars, are being fought with conscripts. And maybe these conscripts are just 18-year-old kids who are not well-trained, which is very tragic. So on the other hand, people say, well, we shouldn't read too much into that because what Russia is really trying to do is win Ukraine with minimal collateral damage and minimal civilian contracts or uh, casualties. So they say the Russian strategy is just steady escalation to use the minimum force necessary to take the country which is why you're not seeing a blitzkrieg-style assault. Starts with probing attacks. If that doesn't work to get the Ukrainians to capitulate, well, then the attacks just escalate in scope and size. So that might be what's going on as well. It's just hard to know because we're only a week into this, right? and there's always the fog of war. Well, Chris, thanks so much, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again uh next month and see where we are then i'm looking forward to it tom and looking forward to my entrance music again so thanks for putting that together i enjoyed that <laughs> okay take care hey you too chris douglas is uh, an economist and uh, uh, 
from University of Michigan, Flint. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, we'll hear a little bit from last night's uh, State of the Union message and the Republican response. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flipflip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. The ruble has already lost 30% of its value. The Russian stock market has lost 40% of its value, and trading remains suspended. The Russian economy is reeling, and Putin alone is the one to blame. Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders, who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. The United States... I mean it. The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. And tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. But let me be clear, our forces are not engaged and will not engage in the conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies in the event that Putin decides to keep moving west. For that purpose, we have mobilized American ground forces, air squadrons, ship deployments to protect NATO countries, including Poland, Romania, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And as I've made crystal clear, The United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch. Unlike the $2 trillion tax cut passed in the previous administration that benefited the top 1% of Americans, the American Rescue Plan... The American Rescue Plan helped working people and left no one behind. created jobs, lots of jobs. In fact, our economy created over 6.5 million new jobs just last year. More jobs in one year than ever before in the history of the United States of America. The economy grew at a rate of 5.7 last year, the strongest growth rate in 40 years. And the first step in bringing fundamental change to our economy that hasn't worked for working people in this nation for too long. 
For the past 40 years, we were told the tax break for those at the top and benefits would trickle down and everyone would, would benefit. But that trickle-down theory led to a weaker economic growth, lower wages, bigger deficits, and a widening gap between the top and everyone else in, in, in nearly a century. And tonight, I'm announcing that this year, we will start fixing over 65,000 miles of highway and 1,500 bridges in disrepair. No matter what your ideology, we all know one of the most serious constitutional responsibility a president has is nominating someone to serve on the United States Supreme Court. As I did four days ago, I've nominated the Circuit Court of Appeals, Katanji Brown Jackson, one of our nation's top legal minds, who continue in just broad Justice Breyer's legacy of excellence. A former top litigator in private practice, a former federal public defender, from a family of public school educators and police officers. She's a consensus builder. Since she's been nominated, she's received a broad range of support, including the Fraternal Order of Police and former judges supported by Democrats and Republicans. My fellow Americans, tonight, We've gathered in this sacred space, a citadel of democracy, in this capital, generation after generation of Americans have debated great questions, made great strife, and have done great things. We fought for freedom, expanded liberty, debated totalitarianism and terror. We built the strongest, freest, and most prosperous nation the world has ever known. Now is the hour, our moment of responsibility, our test of resolve and conscience of history itself. It is in this moment that our character of this generation is formed. Our purpose is found. Our future is forged. Well, I know this nation. We'll meet the test, protect freedom and liberty, expand fairness and opportunity. And we will save democracy. As hard as those times have been, I'm more optimistic about America today than I've been my whole life, because I see the future that's within our grasp, because I know there's simply nothing beyond our, our capacity. We're the only nation on Earth that has always turned every crisis we faced into an opportunity. The only nation that can be defined by a single word, possibilities. So on this night, on our 245th year as a nation, I've come to report on the state of the nation, the state of the union. And my report is this. The state of the union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. We are stronger today. We are stronger today than we were a year ago. And we'll be stronger a year from now than we are today. This is our moment to meet and overcome the challenges of our time. And we will, as one people, one America, the United States of America. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Go get him.
Good evening. I'm Kim Reynolds, governor of the great state of Iowa. Like you, I just watched the president's address. I listened as the governor of our state, as a mom and a grandmother of 11, who's worried our country is on the wrong track. We're now one year into his presidency, and instead of moving America forward, it feels like President Biden and his party have sent us back in time to the late 70s and early 80s when runaway inflation was hammering families, a violent crime wave was crashing our cities, and the Soviet army was trying to redraw the world map. Talk to Americans about what's on their mind. Ask them, what are your concerns? What keeps you up at night? And they'll tell you. And I can tell you what's not on that list. They won't tell you that spending trillions more and bankrupting their children is the answer to their problems. They won't tell you that we should be paying people not to work. And they certainly won't tell you that we should give billions in tax giveaways to millionaires and billionaires in Democrat-controlled states like California, New York, and New Jersey. But that's what the Biden administration has been pushing for over the last year. And that's all part of Build Back Better. Thankfully, the president's agenda didn't pass because even members of his own party said enough is enough. Well, the American people share that view. Enough is enough. And it's not just with DC spending. Americans are tired of a political class trying to remake this country into a place where an elite few tell everyone else what they can and cannot say, what they can and cannot believe. They're tired of people pretending the way to end racism is by categorizing everybody by their race. They're tired of politicians who tell parents they should sit down, be silent, and let government control their kids' education and future. Frankly, they are tired of the theater, where politicians do one thing when the cameras are rolling and another when they believe you can't see them where governors and mayors enforce mandates but don't follow them, where elected leaders tell their citizens to stay home while they sneak off to Florida for sun and fun, where they demand that your child wear a mask, but they go maskless. So you've heard the excuses. They were just holding their breath. But it's the American people who are waiting to exhale waiting for the insanity to stop. Over the last few years, I've put my faith in Iowans, and they haven't let me down. I encourage this president to do the same, to put his faith in you, the American people, who have never wavered in your belief in this country, regardless of who leads it. Because you know, you've shown, that the soul of America isn't about who lives in the White House. It's men and women like you in every corner of this nation who are willing to step up and take responsibility for your communities, for your neighbors, and ultimately for yourselves. By that most important measure at least, the state of our union is indeed strong. Thank you. God bless you, 
and God bless the United States of America. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>